Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1921. The epitome of black community and black excellence. Up until now, it was perhaps the greatest black-owned community ever established on United States soil. Until it wasn't. What once was over 30 square blocks of black-owned businesses and generational wealth ready to be passed down for the next century was destroyed over the course of 48 hours, all because of a lie. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. Today's episode discusses the importance of black-owned businesses, so I wanted to highlight a business that I think is pretty special. Melanin Eclectic is a small online stationery shop that puts emphasis on the black and fantastical world that already exists in the world they are trying to create. They currently have a Kickstarter campaign going, trying to get the creation of their everyday Eda bags funded. And the campaign is almost complete. These leather bags are small, compact, and stylish, and can be used as carrying bags or pencil pouches. Check the link in the description to see how you can contribute and to check out their business. Now, let's get to the show. Before I get started, I wanted to just talk for a second about this event and what its history means to me personally. I've been aware of what the Tulsa Massacre is and was aware of it for several years now, but just on the surface level. Kind of mad I didn't know more about it sooner, but shout out to the North Carolina public school system. But I really ended up doing a deep dive about it at the beginning of 2021 when I was selected to be a voice actor recording a part in a documentary on the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre called Tulsa Burning in May 2021, produced by Russell Westbrook. Yes, that Russell Westbrook. Huge, huge honor and an opportunity that gave me a chance to really dive into what this event is and its significance. The Tulsa Race Massacre is considered to be one of the deadliest acts of racial violence and racial terror in the United States history. Almost 60 years after the Civil War and freeing of enslaved black people and two years after the Red Summer of 1919. And this week was the 101st anniversary. Like I said, the Tulsa Race Massacre took place over the course of 48 hours. Two days. Two days of burning, looting and killing. Two days worth of unmitigated terror that undid decades worth of building and that had generations worth of repercussions. As you listen to this episode, I want you to maybe jot down some thoughts, figuratively or literally. How could an event that was so long ago systemically affect a group of people for over a century? How much has really changed since then? What efforts have we really put in to change since then? Oklahoma the Sooner State, Texas to the south, Arkansas to the east, Kansas to the north, and New Mexico to the west. From a historical perspective, I could talk about Oklahoma for days because it was such a richly, it has such a richly disturbing history. The name Oklahoma derives from the Choctaw words, okra, which means people, and humma, which means red. Yeah, you see where this is going. Up until the 1900s, the western part of what was the United States, and still is the United States, was really just an unorganized mess. The United States was constantly trying to expand westward. Think back to your 11th grade social studies class. Remember that word, manifest destiny? Yeah, they thought it was God's ordained will that we expand the country to the west. And this westward expansion 
really was just uh, up until, you know, the Civil War. Hey, how much slavery can we get out west? Uh, But this westward expansion, uh, the Civil War, Mexican-American Wars, treaties, broken treaties, territories, statehoods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This was everything that was happening in the western territory of the United States. And Oklahoma uh, was part of that. There was what was called the Indian Territory, set aside for Native Americans to relocate from lands across the country that were needed for slavery and things of the sort. The relocation of Native Americans uh, is what we see with events such as the Trail of Tears and forcible removal of tens of thousands of Native Americans in ethnic cleansing. Oklahoma's history is dark. Oklahoma Territory and Indian Territory were merged into the state of Oklahoma when it became the 46th state to enter the Union on November 16, 1907. Now, let's talk about Tulsa. Tulsa was a relatively small area of land that's rich in history, having been home to several different Native American tribes, many of which were survivors of the Trail of Tears. It was turned into what was called a microtown, located near the Arkansas River, and elected its first mayor in 1898. Tulsa was low-key for the most part. That is, until a sizable amount of oil was discovered in 1901, and folks lost their minds. And of course, the oil was discovered on land owned by a Native American tribe, but no one cared. By 1905, even more oil was discovered, and white entrepreneurs and businessmen flocked and did what white entrepreneurs and businessmen often did when a natural resource was newly discovered. Due to the surge of oil, Tulsa saw a wild influx and an increase in population, growing to over 140,000 people by 1930. If you're digging the podcast, consider going over to the Patreon to unlock exclusive content or subscribing to the YouTube channel for future visual podcasts. Do you want to hear my voice with pictures? You should do that. All this can be found in the description below. Now let's get back to the show. Black Wall Street, the Greenwood District, or as Booker T. Washington put it, Negro Wall Street. Now, there are many tall tales and accounts of how the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma came to be about. Legend has it that around 1905, a black man from Arkansas named O.W. Gurley bought 40 acres of Tulsa land and said, this is for black people. But there's no 100% verification of that fact. But we're going to go with that. Many black folk flocked to the Oklahoma Territory after the Civil War because why not? Anything was better than the South that was embroiled in Jim Crow laws and black codes. And many parts of the South, including Florida and Georgia and South Carolina, had many issues um, during the later parts of the 19th century with white men still enslaving black people, but calling it just like peonage or, you know, a different type of servitude. Black people wanted to escape that. But as we will come to find out, Oklahoma was to be no better. When Oklahoma became a state in 1907, the census counted about 6,611 whites, 638 blacks, and remarkably and sadly, only 49 Native Americans in Tulsa. In 1911, the Greenwood District of Tulsa was like a small ember burning with loads of potential. 
Between 1903 and 1920, there were many prominent and savvy black people that moved to Tulsa and set up successful and long-standing business ventures. In May 1906, when Emma Gurley, O.W. Gurley's wife, acquired property in Block 46 from a white man, Gurley's hotel and store was built and it may have been the first businesses on Greenwood. W.F. Jones, who became one of the leading property owners in the neighborhood. Other early property owners included G.F. Blevins, C.F. Parker, and William and James Miller. Jim Cherry was a plumber from Texas who became one of Greenwood's most successful black property owners. Like many financially secure black Tulsans of the era, Jim Cherry seems to have been constantly on the scout for financial opportunity. Between 1909 and 1921, he operated a pool hall, ran a grocery store, took in boarders, traded real estate, and served as deputy sheriff. Dr. Robert Tyler Bridgewater was listed as one of Tulsa's two black physicians. J.B. Stratford's crowning achievement, the Stratford Hotel, was completed in Tulsa around 1920 and was emblematic of Greenwood's accelerating growth. In 1911, the only colored hotel in Tulsa was O.W. Gurley's, but J.B. Stratford built another one. In 1911, there were five black churches, three black attorneys, two black physicians, and, and no black movie theater. But 10 years later, in 1921, the city directory listed a dozen black churches, 15 black physicians, a black hospital, and two black movie theaters. There was a YMCA on North Greenwood Avenue, that reported to have 500 members. There was a Booker T. Washington High School, perhaps the first secondary school in the state for African-American students. It opened in 1913. Greenwood was bustling, not without its problems though. You see, the entire reason that Greenwood existed it was because of segregation. Yes, Oklahoma, brought into the Union in 1907, was no different, more or less, than everything else that was happening, you know, in the Jim Crow South. Uh, even when black people would, you know, flee to the North or to the West, there were still large amounts of racism and black codes. So... When we look at Greenwood, yes, there were bustling businesses. There was a, a great economy, but it had its problems. The sanitation was very poor. The heart of Greenwood had unpaved streets, no sanitary sewers, and little to no running water. In March of 1921, 350 black people petitioned the city of Tulsa for clean sewers and running water and were swiftly denied. Greenwood was a shining example of how black people have always had to make do with less. But even with its issues, black people continued to flock to Tulsa. Between 1910 and 1920, the population swelled from less than 2,000 to over 9,000 black people. And a lot of black people said, yeah, yeah, it was for economic opportunity. But more importantly, it was for the sense of family, purpose, and community. This was pivotal for black survival. Remember, we are only 60 years removed from the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, but in the thick of Jim Crow and black codes. Black people are still very much second-class citizens in the United States of America, where they went, talked to, applied to, worked, was all under intense scrutiny. In 1921, we were just two years removed from the red summer of 1919, a massive wave of racial violence towards black people due to high societal tensions after World War I. 
In a lot of parts of Tulsa, black people actually worked for white people, but they didn't feel like they were bound to white people. They worked as domestic workers, cooks, waiters, porters, shoe shiners, laborers, truck drivers. Um, some had trades. They were plumbers, carpenters, mechanics, bricklayers. In other parts of Tulsa, blacks were, of course, barred from um, patroning a lot of white establishments. So a lot of black people consciously kept their money circulating in the black Greenwood community. There were small background tensions between white and black people in Tulsa surrounding many things, the economy, voting, Jim Crow, racial classes, you name it. But nothing had truly ever boiled over. Everyone stayed in their lane until they didn't. Some say Dick Rowland and Sarah Page had a relationship. Some say they were just friends. Some say they were strangers. No one knows for absolute certain. But what we do know is they ended up on an elevator together on May 30th, 1921. On the morning of May 30th, 1921, Dick Rowland was working as a shoe cleaner in a white-owned shop. He had to use the restroom and there were no colored restrooms in the building. So Dick had to walk to the Drexel building. The story told by police and reported the next afternoon in the Tulsa Tribune is that Roland got into the elevator operated by Sarah Page on the third floor of the Drexel building at 319 South Main Street. And that somewhere on the way to the ground floor, the two came into contact. Sarah screamed, attracting the attention of an employee of Renberg's department store, which occupied the first two floors of the four story building. The unnamed employee summoned police while Roland fled. He was arrested the next morning. The Tulsa public gained word of the incident and the arrest when the next day the Tulsa Tribune read, Nab Negro for attacking girl in elevator. Sarah Page, the girl in question, gave her account. She said she noticed the Negro a few minutes before the attempted assault, looking up and down the hallway on the third floor of the Drexel building, as if to see if there was anyone in sight but she thought nothing of it at the time. A few minutes later, he entered the elevator, she claimed, and attacked her, scratching her hands and face and tearing her clothes. Her screams brought a clerk from Renberg's store to her assistance, and the Negro fled. He was captured and identified this morning, both by the girl and the clerk, police say. Yeah, okay, Sarah. The story was written as a clear incendiary tactic. Black men across the nation had been hung for far less. The paper story made Roland out to be some monster, out for prey to assault an innocent young girl. Many people have maintained that another editorial was published in the Tribune on May 31st, calling for the lynching of Dick Roland. But that editorial cannot be found anywhere to this day. Many speculate that it was a special limited edition of the Tribune that was printed that said, Lynch Negro Tonight. After his arrest, Roland was taken to police headquarters and is said to have given a statement to authorities where he said he only stepped on Sarah's foot. Roland was subsequently moved to the Tulsa Courthouse Jail because there were apparently anonymous threats made to the police saying that we are going to lynch that Negro tonight for assaulting that girl. Tuesday, May 31st, 1921. Around mid-afternoon, a decently sized crowd of white men had circled the courthouse. It is said that this initial crowd wasn't violent, more so nosy and curious. What was going on? But there were growing confidence that a white crowd would eventually congregate and that would become hostile. And the black residents of Greenwood knew this. So black men gathered in cars and got ready to drive to the courthouse. 
a school operator named Mary Parrish said, Therefore, some of our group banded together to add to the protection of the life that was threatened to be taken without a chance to prove his innocence, end quote. The sheriff of Tulsa pleaded for the black man to go home, and they did. But then a larger group returned, and he pleaded for that group to go home, and they did. But then more returned, some with weapons, some World War I veterans dressed in their uniforms, determined to stand up not just for Dick Rowland, but for their entire race. By about 10 p.m., the numbers in front of the courthouse had grown substantially, about 2,000 whites and 300 or so black men. The numbers vary by account. The white men were intent on intimidation and potentially disarming the black men. Accounts say that a white man walked up to a black man who was wielding a pistol and demanded the black man turn over his weapon. The black man refused. A tussle ensued. The pistol discharged. And in the words of the sheriff, all hell broke loose. At the end of the exchange of gunfire, 12 people were dead, 10 black and two white. White Tulsans would give accounts that blacks were trying to take over the city. What was really just a stance of solidarity was interpreted as a racial uprising. Whites began looting pawn shops and sporting goods stores, at first taking guns and ammo, and then most everything else of value. Hundreds of special deputies are turned loose on Tulsa streets by the Tulsa Police Department. Street fighting in downtown Tulsa continues for about two hours until African-Americans are really retreating in droves back into Greenwood. So at this point, the blacks begin retreating into Greenwood and they're quickly followed by the white mob and many of the black people are taken off guard and attacked and killed. Through the early morning of Wednesday, June 1st, the shooting and looting only intensifies. The National Guard is officially activated and several African-American occupied buildings on the north side of the Tulsa train tracks are set on fire. White rioters began preventing firefighters from extinguishing blazes. At around 5 a.m., organized assault on Greenwood begins, signaled, according to some people, by a loud whistle. Many Greenwood residents flee northward and out of the city. Those who remain are taken into custody and are interned or stay behind and fight. During this time, six airplanes circle overhead. Authorities say the planes were used strictly for reconnaissance, but others say the craft attacked with guns and bombs. A black man named Buck Franklin said, I could see planes circling in midair. They grew in number and hummed, darted and dipped low. I could hear something like hail flailing upon the top of my office building. Down East Archer Street, I saw the old Midway Hotel on fire, burning from its top, and then another and another and another building began to burn from their top. He went on to say, lurid flames roared and belched and licked their forked tongues into the air. Smoke ascended the sky in thick, black volumes and emitted all the planes, now a dozen or more in number, still hummed and darted here and there with the agility of natural birds of the air. Franklin writes that he left his law office, locked the door, and descended to the foot of the steps. The sidewalks were literally covered with burning turpentine balls. I knew all too well where they came from, and I knew all too well why every burning building first caught from the top. I paused and waited for an opportune time to escape. Where aware is our splendid fire department? 
with its half-dozen stations, he asks himself, is the city in conspiracy with this mob? At this point, Greenwood is being emptied. African Americans are fleeing or plotting to keep fighting back, but the numbers are dwindling. By 11.15 a.m. on June 1st, Governor J.B.A. Robertson declares martial law. Fighting, arson, and looting have mostly stopped by this time, but the damage is done. The body count of African Americans is high, but there was never a truly accurate number because many bodies were burned, thrown in coal pits, or thrown in the Arkansas River. The commercial section of Greenwood was destroyed. Losses included 191 businesses, a junior high school, several churches, and the only hospital in the district. The Red Cross reported that 1,256 houses were burned and another 215 were looted but not burned. The Tulsa Real Estate Exchange estimated property losses amounted to $1.5 million in real estate and $750,000 in personal property. That's equivalent to over $34 million in 2021. The Red Cross reported in December 1921 that an estimated 10,000 people were made homeless by the destruction. Over the next year, local citizens filed more than $1.8 million in riot-related claims against the city. That's $27 million in 2021. The Tulsa Race Massacre was then largely swept under the rug. National, local papers didn't really report on it. Many black people involved and displaced because of it never spoke out because of fear. Many black home and business owners attempted to get their land and businesses back and rebuilt, but were largely unsuccessful. White business owners sued the city and basically took over. The Ku Klux Klan conveniently saw a massive resurgence in the United States around this time, thanks to President Woodrow Wilson, but a massive resurgence in Oklahoma and Tulsa during this time as well, almost as a final insult to injury. Afterwards, many black Tulsans participated in the Great Migration. They had to leave. This saw black people venturing to the West, North, and Northeast in hopes of better life and financial prosperity, something they thought they had in Tulsa. O.W. Gurley, perhaps the person most responsible for Greenwood's existence, never financially recovered from the riot either and also moved to California. Not much is known about Dick Rowland. It is known he was eventually let free, not taken by the mob and not lynched, and he made his way to the Pacific Northwest where he is said to have died in the 1950s. There was a Tulsa Race Riot Commission established that tried for years to locate Dick Rowland and Sarah Page, but they were unsuccessful. Ironically enough, the fates of the two people who set in motion the events that led to the riot were left up to mystery, especially Sarah. Black Tulsa repressed the riot and tried their best to move on and to rebuild, but it just never really happened. Money that was supposed to be for generational wealth or retirement was spent trying to rebuild. It wasn't until the 1970s where the retellings and truth of the riot began to pick up steam again. By this time, the old green wood was all but gone, reduced to a single block by urban renewal, migration, big box retailers, an interstate highway, and the simple passage of time. In 1997, a commission to investigate the riot was established. The goal would be for some sort of responsibility for the riot to be established and for some sort of compensation and reparations to go to the victims. 
The issue was that reparations for the riot were something that white Tulsans weren't going to get behind. They felt no connection to the riot or its implications, and the government of Oklahoma felt the same. In June of 2001, Governor Frank Keating signed the 1921 Tulsa Race Riot Reconciliation Act into law. The act acknowledged that the event occurred, but failed to deliver any substantial reparations to the victims or their descendants. Today, there is only one building still standing in Tulsa that was a part of the Greenwood District prior to the riot, and that's the historical Vernon AME Church. This week is the 101st anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, one of the deadliest acts of racial terror and violence in American history. Black people in this country have never been given a fair shake. When we talk about the implications and legacy of racism and slavery, we have to talk about Tulsa. We have to talk about how thousands of black people were robbed of their chance at prosperity. In my mind, we aren't that far removed from Tulsa, from Greenwood, from Black Wall Street. Yes, it was 101 years ago, but what's changed? If you ask me, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Until next time. Don't forget to check the link in the description to check out the Kickstarter campaign for Melanin Eclectic, a Black-owned business putting emphasis on fantasy and style for Black people. Let's support Black-owned businesses. Yo, if you love the show, if you love the podcast, be sure to go down and leave us a review and a rating. It goes a long way. I really appreciate it.